Welcome to a special Brexit edition of City AM's podcast. I'm Christian May, editor of City AM. And I'm Emma Hazlett, the digital editor at City AM. And we're joined in the studio today by Natalie Reynolds, a specialist negotiation strategist with the firm Advantage Spring. From the point at which Cameron concluded those negotiations onwards until last week, it was a negotiation with the British public, and one that I think they spectacularly misjudged. And Jimmy McLaughlin, the Head of External Relations at Business Lobby Group, the Institute of Directors. We are in a position now which is not something that you see in Western democracies very often, but where political instability is up there with economic instability. Let's just take a little moment to think about the result of the vote itself. It swung over the course of the night. Initially, we were all told various polls and positions were that Remain had just edged it. That began to shift, I suppose, around two in the morning. Uh, on, that was when I got into the office. Which is exactly when Emma joined us. <laughs> um, mostly on the basis of higher than expected turnout from the Leave vote. Jimmy, what point of the night did you think this was certainly going to go against the grain of public opinion? Um, it was about 2.30 actually, we'd got this sort of initial results from Newcastle and Sunderland which showed better expected results for leave and it was more a case of, of waiting to see whether it was just a localised northeast issue but actually it, it wasn't and you then began to see it right throughout the rest of the country better than expected results. So it was about 2.30, obviously the declaration came in about 4am from the BBC but yeah 2.30 was the time when I thought we really might be seeing a change of the change in the winds. And Natalie, I think you were in New York at the time of this. What was it like watching it unfold from over there? I was. I, I was out in New York, so obviously the time difference was an issue. I, I'd been out with a few colleagues, got back to my hotel room, turned on the news and just sat there open-mouthed at what was happening. And, and, and I really kind of checked in at the point at which uh, outlets like the BBC were starting to declare for leave. Uh, and, of course, obviously I had the added you know, interesting aspect of seeing the US coverage of what was happening, which you know, was, was making it, you know, what is Britain doing, is basically what the US outlets were saying. It was absolute shock from the US media. So it was, uh, yeah, quite a strange place to be. What was really interesting is I think, like many people here, Wall Street didn't really believe we would leave. And so the day before it happened, a number of the clients I've been working with had said, oh yeah, we've got a conference call on Friday morning to discuss whatever's going to be the outcome. But, you know, we're not that worried about it. The next morning when I, I went for a meeting with a big investment bank and it was pandemonium because they just hadn't really thought it was going to happen. Emma, uh, you joined us uh, in the office, obviously the print team. The print team were, were there uh, all night putting out different editions and then the online operation kicked in pretty much as soon as we put our last edition to bed at about 3am. Um, so what are your reflections on, on, on people's appetite for news during that chaotic period where it really did begin to look as if Leave were going to win and obviously right through the next Friday, I think it was a record traffic day for cityam.com. We had two great interns working for us who were putting together a map of all the results. And the longer things went on, the more apparent it became just by looking at that map that the Remain vote really was in little geographical bubbles, London being one of them. And I think everyone was just aghast, weren't they? Even you were aghast. I was, um, although I'm happy to go on record and blow my own trumpet to say that I, d I didn't buy the uh, YouGov position at 10 o'clock um, and I did say that I thought this was going to run. Actually, I didn't necessarily think it was going to go to leave, but what I said was this is going to swing up and down for the next four, five, six hours. Mm -hmm. And we just sat there watching Sterling and, of course, it, it moved on every result. 
Um, and Natalie, you said that there was this sort of extraordinary level of, of, of um, shock in the States about the outcome, which I suppose then ties into the fact that we had a, what, nearly 90% increase in international traffic to the website? Yeah, absolutely. And, and a lot of that was actually coming from New York. So clearly they were desperate to find out what was going on. Okay, well, we, we know what's happened. The result uh, is clear. There are some silly clamouring for a second referendum, but I think the word from sensible quarters is that that's just not going to happen. So we have to deal with the situation that we find. Um, there's all sorts of reaction. There's political fallout, there's markets uh, in turmoil, uh, not least in sterling, and, and indeed then the wider business community. And on that last point about business perhaps away from centre of financial services, which we'll return to, Jimmy, the IOD has got a huge footprint both in small and medium-sized enterprises and also in the entrepreneurial sector. Mm. What is the reaction from your members? Well, the reaction, I, I think, on the Friday was partly shock. I don't think many people saw it coming. Yeah, we have 35,000 members right across the country, across all different types of sectors, and, and we set about surveying them straight away. And I think that it was, they came back and two-thirds of them said that they believed that the result was negative, and sort of a bit deeper down than that, they said that 24% will put a freeze on recruitment, 5% will, will look to make redundancies. So some of the top-line figures are, you, we look at it and they, they, are, you know, they are not positive. It's scary. It, it is, but I think there is an inevitability that a lot of companies for the last three to four months have been waiting to make investment decisions, not on the basis of whether we are in or out particularly, but just in the case they didn't want to make two eventualities. They didn't want to put in twice as much due diligence and work. So we're waiting for the results. So I think we will see some uptick in that in terms of waiting um in terms of deals going through and so on which will which will be beneficial for the economy and emma from your perspective having sat glued to the market reaction in the last uh, 48 hours what have been the major movers um as far as you've been covering it uh banks and house builders i think have been the, the ones going down and there are a couple of commodity firms so we've had rangold was up a lot yesterday although that slid a little bit this morning, although this goes out tomorrow, so who knows what the markets will be doing then. Um, but house builders have been big casualties. Today, they were a little bit calmer. They managed to persuade people that things aren't, might not be as bad as they thought. Barclay Group, I think, has been a casualty of a bit of shorting. It was the only house builder that was down this morning. Um, and sticking with the banks, actually, which I'm interested in, is it not the case that, that particularly as far as Europe's banks are concerned, they were not in the best of health before this referendum result. And actually, you know, we saw a huge amount of uh, issues and concerns in that sector being laid at the door of, of, of Brexit uncertainty in the run-up to the referendum, with a few wise ahead saying, hang on, there's more at play here than just referendum uncertainty. I mean, yeah, a lot of the financials came out this morning, not necessarily banks, but you know, the likes of LNG, and really sought to reassure their investment investors even. Um, they were all up a little bit this morning. I didn't check the markets before we left. But, um, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next few days and weeks and months, to be honest. Actually, much was made in the run-up to this referendum by uh, every sector of officialdom in this country and further afield, not least from the Treasury and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, saying that a vote to leave would trigger the most cataclysmic financial meltdown uh, known to man. Um, Things are pretty choppy out there, and that may be an understatement, but we haven't seen the kind of spectacular implosion 
dare I say it yet, that some predicted. How sensible a move was it, um, if you consider that the Chancellor was essentially negotiating with the British public ahead of the vote, how sensible a move was it to go in that hard with such dire warnings ahead of a vote that a lot of people felt inclined uh, to, to make? I mean, I, I found the way this was all conducted just fascinating. And, and one, of my, one of my points has always been, you know, obviously we've got massive negotiations on the horizon, but the negotiations actually started long before Cameron went to Europe to try and negotiate changes to the agreement prior to this referendum. And, and my view was, and I spoke to clients at length about this, from the point at which Cameron concluded those negotiations onwards until last week, it was a negotiation with the British public, and one that I think they spectacularly misjudged. And any good negotiator knows you need to understand your counterparty and what motivates them, and I just think Osborne, Cameron, all of them completely failed to get inside the head of their counterparty, which is a, the huge amounts of the British public who... You know, they were backlashing against experts. They were backlashing against uh, scaremongering and fear tactics. They needed sensible information and they weren't giving it. Did they underestimate the power of Farage and the rest of the Leave campaign? I think they did as well. I, I, you know, I don't think at any point was there a proper assessment done of who's our counterparty here. Because initially the government's counterparties were the British public and the Leave camp. And I think they misjudged both sets of their opposition. I think it's interesting that a lot of people really mocked Nigel Farage. He, you know, he's he's come in for a lot of mockery, but you know, he stood up in the European Parliament this morning and and said, you know, people laughed at me when I walked in. Do you think that that mockery that he's he's taken from all sides has really contributed to his his strength and also the Leave campaign strength because he wasn't one of the core members? I think, unfortunately. Farage has been so consistent that I think large swathes of the British public admire that consistency. He doesn't chop and change. He's stuck to his position, and I think a lot of the British public admire that. I also think there's an element of the underdog here. He gets bashed from all sides, and I think a lot of the British public don't like that. They don't like to see the perceived elite bashing what looks like to be a common man on the street. And one of the things, and, and again, I, I say this all the time, a brilliant negotiator understands their strengths and understands their weaknesses. I think he always addresses his weaknesses so that no one can kind of make a big issue of them. And he plays to his strengths. He plays to them incredibly well. Barrage in the European Parliament this morning reminded me just for a moment of Bob Monkhouse. He said, everybody laughed at me when I said I wanted to become a comedian, but they're not laughing now. <laughs> um, Jimmy... You, I happen to know, have just come from a meeting with the business secretary um, and potential future uh, Tory uh, chancellor, um, if his own hype is to be believed. Um, what is the mood that you can detect from, from just how prepared the government were for a Brexit vote? It is difficult to sort of say how prepared the government were because I think that a, a lot of institutions uh, weren't prepared for it, as we were talking about. Well, that's shameful. Well, was... Is that not shameful? Well, I think it's... No, because I think there's aspects of business that weren't prepared on both sides as well. And part, part of it from the business aspect is, is, like I said, they didn't want to prepare two sets of due diligence for it. So we're just waiting for the result, no matter which way that it went. So there is some preparation in, from government in terms of how to, to kind of move forward with this. But you, we are in a position now which is not something that you see in Western democracies very often, but where political instability is up there with economic instability in the sense that now, because the Prime Minister has said that he is, is standing down and that Article 50 won't be triggered until the new Prime Minister comes in, you do have a period now of where nobody knows which position they are going to be 
in and how they're going to be and, and who's going to be leading those negotiations for that particular department. So there is certainly an issue there in terms of the political instability sort of being right up there with the economic instability, which is not something that we're used to dealing with. Um, Natalie, let's turn to the negotiations that are now going to have to come. Only Britain can trigger Article 50, um, which is a phrase with which many of us have become rapidly familiar. Um, only the Brits can trigger it. So the position appears to be that some on the continent, including Angela Merkel, don't want that triggered until there is a new Prime Minister in place. That may be September or early October. Um, all we know so far is that Oliver Letwin, a man best known up to this point for disposing of classified documents in a bin in a park in uh, St James's <laughs> Park in London, has been tasked with pulling together some civil servants to sit around a table and spitball ideas about what Britain should do next. What should, I mean, who starts in these negotiations from a strong position? There is so much, so much to think about uh, in the next few months. The first thing I would say is I think we're underestimating the whole issue around Article 50. There are going to be negotiations now internally within the Tory party, within government, as to how and when, if ever, Article 50 is triggered. So they're negotiating, negotiating. They're they're negotiating when the negotiation is going to take place, if it takes place. So the the negotiations have already started behind closed doors. So on that point, uh, but Juncker and Tusk and other European leaders have made it perfectly clear publicly that absolutely no informal discussions will begin until Article 50 is triggered. Are we expected to believe that we did no no backdoor conversations backroom conversations between our diplomats and theirs I mean I think the reality is is there will be an element of conversation going on but this this is my ultimate point on all of this we should not forget the impact of ego and power in this next series of, of, of interactions between the EU and the U, uh, and Great Britain. So, so put very simply, you're right, Juncker and others have been making a lot of noises about we want you to do this quick, we want you out, we're not prepared to talk to you. It's classic posturing, classic negotiation tactics. Uh, and then you've got the more reasoned voice of Merkel, uh, who is saying, well, actually, maybe we should you know, take our time and have a think about this and, and wait. Now, each, each side's strategy has a strength. Juncker and Schultz and, and, and people like that from, from the European institutions, they are posturing to try and get this done quickly because they think Britain's on the back foot. And if we go in to negotiate with them now, we are going to be in the position of power. Whereas I think Merkel and others are of the view, actually, we're navigating uncertain waters here. We've never been in this position before, not just Britain, but Europe as well. How do we negotiate an exit? And we need a strategy as well. So in some ways... Taking ages to get to it may work in our favour, but it also may work to our advantage because we do need time. And, you know, I worked in government for 12 years. I am aware of how capable many of the departments are when it comes to negotiating major and complex deals, and they have got a massive challenge on their hands now. The amount of data and information that's got to be processed, strategies that have got to be developed over multiple negotiations, over multiple years, is, is a huge task. And presumably from a, a negotiating, negotiating perspective, going for a second referendum would be a terrible idea in the eyes of the British public. I think it would, and I, I think it makes us look like we're weak and indecisive, and you know, it sends another message as well to Europe. You know, I, I hate this phrase, it's been very overused in the last few days, we are where we are. We, we are, where we are. Mm-hmm. And from a legal standing, it still doesn't mean that we have to exit Europe. From a political position... I think, you know, we're going to start going down that route. But uh, I think, you know, we've got to be very careful now that any move we make as a nation will impact on our negotiating position. Jimmy, do you think there's going to be a distinction between some of the political voices we've seen coming out of 
Europe and the central institutions there about there being consequences and a quick divorce must now take place. And the political desire to make an example of Britain, not to let Britain have a great deal off the back of this. Do you think that will contrast with the business mindset of those in Europe? We've already seen the, the head of the equivalent of the German CBI saying we must keep trade at the same levels, we have to do a deal that benefits both sides. Is there going to be a tension between the political desire on the continent to give us a bit of a slap and the business and financial side of Europe who actually just, what, you know, it, it's as much in their advantage as it is ours to keep things going? Yeah, I, I think there is, a, there is a danger of that. I think as Natalie says, you have to be careful of egos at this stage and you know, I think one of the places that you see egos most prevalent is in, is in politics and politicians, whereas actually businesses will just want to get on with it and get and, and just drive the, the respective economies forward. Everyone needs to trade with each other still, so there is no point in Europe and the European Union sort of cutting off its nose to spite its face. That needs to be the sort of message from, from business leaders and from economists trying to drive the economies forward. Let's turn to domestic politics, because it is certainly, as far as the Labour Party is concerned, it is... Um, not the most significant story of the day, but possibly the most entertaining. Um, <laughs> I think at last count there were 43 senior resignations from Jeremy Corbyn's top team. I don't know, we've been in here half an hour, Christian. You're right, you're right. It could be anything up to 60, even more. But, but essentially, Jimmy, what future the Labour Party? Is it, is, it not, is, it, is it credible now as people are starting to talk about the fact that if Corbyn clings on to power with his ultra-loyalists, that in fact the party could split? I think there is, there are so many possibilities which could happen to the Labour Party, it is difficult to kind of bracket it into two. Jeremy Corbyn has said that he is going to remain on the ballot if it goes forward to another leadership contest towards the membership, but that's not even true whether, you know, that's not necessarily clear in their constitution. So it, it's, not, it's not even clear for that. It's probably good news for lawyers, as perhaps the whole last few days has been. Um, but there are serious dangers for the Labour Party. The fact that they are leading the news bulletins three days after a Prime Minister has resigned, and we are in, we are in the actual midst of a Conservative leadership election now, that Labour is still dominating the news headlines. That is remarkable. They do need to think about how they can reposition themselves and so on. This time last year... We were going through a leadership contest and the key words that we were hearing from Labour at this time and from the various leadership candidates were, we need to be on the people, we need to be on the side of the people that are aspiring, we need to be on the people, on the side of people that want to build extensions. That kind of rhetoric has just dropped off in the last year since the leadership contest, which has been a, a real shame. And I think the Labour Party must try and sort of get back and see how it can, how it can work more broadly with business and um, to get on the side of people that aspire and those people that want to get on in life. Natalie, you've, you've doubtless been involved in some pretty hard-headed negotiations in your time. Can you sympathise with the wave after wave of sensible voices in the Labour Party going to see Mr Corbyn one by one and saying you have to resign and his position appears absolutely rock solid? My, my view on the Labour Party right now is, is they are missing a huge opportunity. I think with the Tory party in disarray, with the leadership contest going on, this country is crying out for people who can really influence and have a strong impact on the negotiations that we are going to have to, to get involved in. And Labour need to be influencing those negotiations. Because if they're not, they're losing a huge opportunity to, to speak out for, for their members and for huge sections of this country. And yet currently, the infighting, the resignations, the, you know, the refusal to fall on sword is, is again a phrase I keep hearing and, and reading. 
it just sends a message to everyone, I think, that you know they can't sort themselves out. How are they going to go to Europe and represent our interests as part maybe of a, a cross-party uh, delegation to try and influence the negotiations we're about to do? Right now, if I was in the European Union looking at Britain, I would be thinking, fantastic, right now we've got all this time to start planning our, our positions, start planning our strategies, and they've got no one steering the ship. And finally, just, just in a couple of sentences, uh, I'll go around the room. Uh, I want a quick take on market's likely position in a week, two weeks' time. That is to say, are we just seeing some crazy short-term volatility? Uh, are things going to settle uh, in the weeks ahead, or is this a period of uncertainty that's going to run and run? Emma, what's your take? incrementally lower over the next few months but way less panic Jimmy I would agree with that entirely yeah I'm, I'm going to be I mean I think it's, we're going to be on a downward incline but I think it's going to be less up and down and less frantic okay well fingers crossed Chancellor uh, Osborne's worst economic predictions are simply not going to come to pass but no one can doubt that this is an extraordinary time thank you very much this has been a special Brexit edition of City AM's podcast Jimmy Natalie thank you This has been a special City AM podcast. Your usual unregulated show will be out Thursday on cityam.com, iTunes and Audioboom. City AM Unregulated is an Audioboom production. Audio